0: Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by Ian Williams, who is a Spectator contributor and a former foreign correspondent for Channel 4 News and NBC. He's also author of Every Breath You Take, China's New Tyranny. And also, I'm very delighted to be joined by Nicholas F. Tim Yardis, have I pronounced that correctly, Nicholas?
1: Yes, perfect.
0: Good, good. And you are a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a professor of Homeland Security. And we're going to be talking about probably one of the biggest topics there is, I think, in the world today, and that is Chinese espionage. And it's something, I'll start with you, Ian. It's something that has been talked about a lot in the last 20, 30 years even, as a problem. And it's sort of increasingly bubbling up in the West's consciousness, I'd say. And this latest story about the Chinese building pagodas near important American national security sites has just reminded us again quite how extensive and quite how brazen Chinese espionage is getting. Are we reaching a point now where everybody's accepting it's a problem, or have we been saying this for the last 20 years and it's been ignored?
2: I think a lot of people have been saying it, but it has been ignored. There's a sense that people have known that one of the key methods that China has identified in order to develop, in order to develop its own technology, is through acquiring technology, acquiring Western know-how by whatever means possible. And I think there was a sense in the early days to either play this down or to ignore it to some extent until it reached a point where you simply couldn't do that anymore because it has become so extensive, so brazen, so wide-ranging, that it's just impossible to put it to one side. And I think suddenly, as we saw just a little earlier this month, we have Ken McCallum, the head of MI5, appearing on a platform in London with Chris Wray, the head of the FBI, something that is unprecedented. They hadn't done that before. Chris Wray does tend to put himself out there, but not McCallum. And I think it's evidence of the sheer scale and the enormous concern that they now have that they are going much more public with this. And, of course, the audience were business leaders, academic leaders, who have been targeted quite extensively and who intelligence officials have been worried are really not taking it seriously. don't really even begin to grasp the extent of what they're dealing with.
0: Nicholas, do you think this is something that's got lost with Russia? Because this is something people often say that we've been so, we, the West, America and Britain and the Western powers, have been so focused on Russia and the Russian threat that we've sort of let Chinese espionage go by and we've, we've kind of shaken our heads and pretend it's not happening.
1: No, I, I would say that's been the case for the last six months. Mm. However, I wrote the first scholarly work on this, subject, Chinese intelligence operations in the mid 1990s. I testified multiple times before the US Congress and spoke to lots of foreign governments in the same timeframe. And I said at that time, do something about this problem now, or you're gonna be calling me back in 20 years, screaming, my God, how did it get this bad? So now here we are 25 years later, and the problem has been ignored for decades. And on the part of my country, it's been ignored out of ignorance, out of arrogance, from our policy apparatus and out of greed, not to impact the business relationship. So those three elements have entirely swept for decades, China's actions under the rug. And now we put ourselves in a position where it actually threatens our democracies because it has existed and grown over decades. Mm. So this is the situation we find ourselves in now. Nicholas, how much
0: do you think they are affecting the way American democracy... Let's focus on America for a bit, because this is supposed to be an American podcast. How much is China trying to influence the way American democracy operates? Aside from the you know, national security stuff, which obviously there's spying going on, do you think they're trying to do counter-information in the way that we've often associated with Russia?
1: So, yeah, let's take this in three great realms. You know, we have the traditional national security espionage, which a number of cases show they're active in. We had the commercial economic espionage, which again hundreds and hundreds of cases show how aggressive they are, and then you have the covert influence functions, actually over and covert. So we have this entire propaganda mechanism in the United States. There are at least fifteen Chinese state agencies that are actively broadcasting and printing and online, putting PRC propaganda out, and then we have literally covert influence functions trying to buy off politicians or silence voices in the Chinese diaspora or leverage, as we saw in the UK in the Christine Lee case, leverage people within the Chinese diaspora to influence parliamentary bodies. So it's very aggressive moves on all fronts in China, by China in those areas.
0: And to what extent do you think actually under Xi Jinping, China has become, because it's more obviously aggressive or obviously belligerent under Xi, has it become more Honest in a way than it was before in terms of as a national security threat. We now know what China are doing because China's become more belligerent on the world stage.
2: It's certainly more brazen. I think one of the things that we have seen is a complete change in the way China uses its influence operations and the way it conducts misinformation. I mean, until just about four or five years ago, there were very few Chinese diplomats on Twitter or Facebook Now there are hundreds of them growling their way around those platforms. Mm. Also, you've seen this massive increase in Chinese media overseas, state-owned media, online and offline. And I think there's also been a big sea change in the way they operate. They're now much more aggressive, taking a, a page out of the Russian playbook. This isn't just putting out propaganda of smiling, dancing Uyghurs in Xinjiang to try and challenge the narrative of of atrocities taking place there. That's very clunky, almost laughable propaganda. Now, increasingly, you have them inserting themselves in the conversation in America, finding ways to stir things up, to leverage, to try and undermine institutions, and to try and stir up suspicion and hatred in a way which we've seen before from the Russians, but this is relatively new from the Chinese. And, of course, Xi Jinping has identified... These operations, United Front Works Department, sounds like it should be a bunch of municipal officials in high-vis jackets, but actually they're very dangerous, and this is the main institution for influence and for creating an environment overseas conducive for the Communist Party propaganda. And that's been extended enormously under Xi, who's described it as his magic weapon, and the US in particular, has been a big target of this.
0: Yeah, I I would agree. You'd agree with that, Nicholas. Actually, I'll ask both of you this question. I'll start with you. Are we seeing examples of China actually using information warfare to ramp up the idea that it's a threat, as we did with Russia, or as we have done with Russia, in that they're no longer sort of pretending they are not a threat. They are actually stoking fear about China. This would be sort of the cyber version of wolf warrior Diplomacy. Are we seeing examples of that?
2: I think we are. They're much more assertive than they used to be. I mean, you could broadly classify the old disinformation from China as being sort of defensive, targeting groups that it found threatening, trying to counter Western narratives. But now it's become much more proactive in trying to stir things up and much less shy about putting itself out there in that sense.
1: Nicholas, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree with what you've said, Ian. However, on the other side of that, going back now to 2018, when Xi Jinping said this outward assertion is going to be part of Chinese foreign policy now, and actually set in place a mechanism within the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs to reward those who are behaving like, quote, wolf warriors, to try and get the message out. But China has followed and has been following, you even see these strategic studies groups at the highest level in the CCP and the military on the warring states period, right? So they've been looking back at a lot of their history. And part of that understanding of China is not to reveal your capabilities, not to reveal yourself until it's too late for the enemy to to counter it. So that's what we've been seeing for quite a long period of time. China not revealing its plans or intentions, covering them, deceiving foreign diplomats and foreign leaders, no, we're not you know, in a position, nor do we desire to, to be confrontational, up until its capabilities are now able you know, to take on that role. And some, in fact, criticize Xi Jinping for moving too early, and they're still not in a position to do that. So China's main objectives in this case are separating the West, ensuring that the alliance can't move, if you will, as a bloc. To force China to follow, you know, global rules of order at this point. So there's a lot of divide and conquer, trying to be played on their part. And in order to do that, you have to wage espionage and economic warfare and political warfare against different players. And that's exactly where we find ourselves.
2: I think that's right. And I think that if we look at the nature of, of Chinese espionage, it's so broad-based. It's so. You know, it is from the formal all the way through to the informal, the toolkit that China uses and has at its disposal. We've heard the phrase, the thousand grains of sand or the vacuum cleaner approach to intelligence. I think that does raise issues about whether this stuff is even digestible, although their the methods are improving because, as you know, Nicholas, a lot of it is in the interpretation, it's in the analysis, rather than the sheer quantity of data that's hauled in. But certainly the ambition is quite chilling in terms of both the breadth of what they're after and the numerous methods, formal and informal, that they're now using to gather it.
1: I was just going to say, in contrast to most Western intelligence functions, China really takes a whole of society approach. So their mechanisms where they offer the carrot and stick, if you will, the carrot, financial incentives to go out and steal technology, to go out and steal information, And they offer that through a whole of society approach. The stick is China's national intelligence law and the subsequent implementation regulations which say you will cooperate with Chinese intelligence, period. So they basically have a whole of society approach towards being a vacuum cleaner or the thousand grains of sand theory into pulling this information into China.
0: And to what extent, there's been a bit of this recently, a bit of talk about this recently, the extent to which they are absorbing so much information they couldn't possibly compute it. Even China can't compute the levels of data they're sucking in. So are are they holding on to information in the hope that it might have some future value? Is that what's going on?
1: Let me just jump on that, because all intelligence services do that. All intelligence services collect encrypted information that they can't, you know, decipher, that they can't, you know, decrypt. And they do it in the expectation that in years ahead, they'll be able to do it. So, or they do pattern analysis or all those types of things that go with information.
0: But China's doing it on such a bigger scale, right?
1: Right. And they also have these extraordinary investments into artificial intelligence and big data works. And probably now in most areas in that, that thing, leading the world, to be able to comprehend all the data that they go through. Number one. Number two, a lot of that information is technology or related to you know, science or technology related information, trade secrets and such. And last I checked, China had well over 400 national technology integration centers throughout China to help Chinese businesses, state-owned enterprises, identify and assimilate that information. So it's a very, very well-coordinated process throughout China. It's not just a government issue, right? Mm. It's it's all these coordination centers and then provincial coordination centers as well. So there are literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of centers set up to help bring that information, that technology into the Chinese economy. Ian, what do you think,
0: obviously it's simplistic to talk about what China wants, But there can also be a little bit of paranoia among people about being spied on, makes people paranoid being spied on. But what are China's ambitions? I think that's one of the biggest questions that is hard to answer. Having written and researched it quite a lot, what do you think China's ambitions on the world stage are? Is it to become the superpower or is it just to protect China as an entity indefinitely?
2: I think it is to become the world leader in the cutting edge technologies. They've made no secret of that. And alongside the sort of mechanisms that Nicholas mentioned, they have laid out plans and been very specific about the sorts of technology from AI through to robotics, biotech, in which they want to lead the world. And these five year plans, and of course that was one that was called Made in China 2025, which actually spelt out the technologies which it sought to lead the world in. This has been regarded as a kind of hacker's shopping list. It's something which they go after. These are the industries which are most vulnerable. This is the tech that China wants. And there's been no secret that this has been, ever since Deng Xiaoping began to open China, it has been the heart of China's policy, has been to accumulate, to grab, to steal, by whatever means possible, Western know-how and technology in order to incorporate it, copy it, produce products, rival products out of it. This has been the fundamental method that China has used for its economic, technological and and military development. And I, I think that the astounding thing is this hasn't really been a secret, but at this belated point, we are, are just waking up to it and waking up to the extent of it and the sophistication of it. And you have, I think, in many business circles and particularly in academia, which, of course, is, is sensitive about regards any questioning of their funding almost as an intrusion on academic freedom, an enormous naivety and greed. And really, that a lot of these people at some of the institutions, some of our elite institutions here in the UK, have got no idea the extent of, of what they're dealing with. It's been quite astounding to
0: witness. Nicholas, do you think that Britain is too far down the road now and perhaps America isn't in terms of, I'm not just talking about sort of you know elite capture, I'm just talking about just surrendering to espionage. Do you think Britain has effectively given up on being spied on and we've accepted that China are going to spy on us, whereas America hasn't?
1: I don't think Britain's got into the starting gate no, no less given up at this point. I mean, if they had given up, the director of MI5 would not have made a public statement as done. They wouldn't have identified Christine Lee in a warning report to members of parliament for covert influence activities. So the UK has not given up. Look, we see the same thing in the United States. And Ian, I agree with you. Greed is a major part of it. Greed is a major part for politicians who want things funded and China's willing to do it. Greed is a major part for businesses in both our countries who want to make money, and China is perfectly willing to help with that. The difficult part of this all is going to be to hold on to our democratic values as we go through this process and our relationship with China. And we need our governments to help enforce that so we can maintain those values. I will also say one other thing to concur with Ian. China has made no secrets of its ambitions. It has said publicly, and it does every five-year plan, reinforces it, by 2049, 100 years after the humiliation of, uh, you know, the Chinese century of humiliation, we will be set to regain our position at the top of the world. Mm. These are Xi Jinping's words, right? And they emphasize always, as this is a 2049 years, 100 years after, you know, they ended that century of humiliation and began the century of a modern China, that they see their rightful place regaining, not acquiring, a position at, at the top of the world. That they figure the 5,000-year-old civilization has earned them that.
0: I suppose that was the question I was trying to get at, which I didn't really do a very good job of getting at, which is the extent to which their world ambition, their world-dominating ambition is revenge. And to what extent does the West need to be humiliated and suffer for the Chinese to feel that they've won? I think that's... That's what I was trying to get at. I'll start with you, Ian, on that.
2: There's certainly uh, Xi Jinping's Chinese dream of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is underpinned by a sense of victimhood and grievance. This is what drives him. This is what is behind his ambition and behind much of the policy that we, we see from China, whether it's their aggression towards Taiwan or the extent of the espionage in the West. I think that this is a very disturbing nationalist, quite rabid nationalist ideology, which has displaced any sort of sense of communism within the party. And I personally find it extremely threatening. And this really is what underpins Xi's ambition. It's what underpins the ambition of the Chinese Communist Party.
1: Nicholas, do you agree with that? I do. And in fact, I've had some interesting examples, even in my work talking with elements of the U.S. government, when, for example, they've been negotiating with China on issues like fentanyl and trying to get the Chinese government to stop shipments of fentanyl and not understanding the history of opioids and China's feeling of being abused by this for the better part of a century. And I would think, you know, as I try and relate to them, you guys are crazy. You know, they're happy that they're able to affect the West this way. It's seen to them as justice. It's seen to them as, as you know, revenge and justice for the Chinese people. A lot of their approaches tend to have this.
0: I think that's quite a fascinating point that I don't think is generally accepted among people today, that the Chinese would use fentanyl in this way. And I think people think it's a sort of right-wing Trumpist conspiracy talk. But what you're saying there is quite a serious accusation against China, which is that they are deliberately dumping fentanyl, an opioid that's killing lots of Americans in America, as revenge for the opium wars. Is that what you're saying? And I mean, that's a, that's a very serious thing, isn't it?
1: Well, let's say they're not taking any measures to curb it. I mean, this is the same country that brings us you know, the Great Firewall, the ability to control any type of form of dissent online, a surveillance state by everyone's measure, unparalleled in the world today, but they can't seem to do anything about fentanyl. So there are issues of corruption in Chinese governance and society, Got that. But the simple point is that, and of course these things are difficult to prove, but just the fact that they've been asked so many multiple times and have done virtually nothing to stop that when they're able to exert their power and influence in every other aspect of society, would tend to indicate there's a reasoning that they're not doing that. Ian, do
0: you think Donald Trump was obviously chaotic in many ways and not always effective? But one of his big talking points, one of his big priorities was China. And he did talk to the Chinese about fentanyl. And he did seem to have a strategic ambition to to make China's global domination harder or to slow it down or even reverse it do you think the chinese are more comfortable with biden trump certainly changed the
2: conversation there's no doubt about that i think the jury is perhaps out on biden at the moment a lot of the fundamentals of the china policy remained in place and of course being more china skeptic is one of the few bipartisan issues in washington at the moment but we are seeing for instance, when over Taiwan policy, one minute Biden is saying that, implying that policy towards Taiwan has changed and that the U.S. would militarily support the island. And then the White House is backtracking on the Nancy Pelosi proposed visit. I think this has not done any credit to Biden at all. I mean, he'd be better off just saying nothing about it, but implying that he and the military don't like the idea of Pelosi going to Taiwan is playing right into China's hands. I mean, it'll absolutely love this stuff. I think also, to go back to your question about Trump and the Trump scepticism about China, it's a pick-up also on what Nicholas was saying, is that if we look at issues, there's always been a sense that we don't know, we need to engage with China because look at climate change, look at North Korea. Now, I would argue on both of those, China has been extremely cynical. I think China will have to do something about its emissions because of its own problems at home. But I think it has no intention of being a good global citizen over this, and in fact is, is burning coal in unprecedented amounts. And I think if you look at the scale also of sanctions busting on North Korea, which has gone on for a long time, these are both issues where a lot of people have said, hang on a minute, you know, let's, let's go a little bit easier on China because we need them on these issues. And China knows that and it leverages that. And I see no evidence that it's really played the constructive role that those people would hope it would. In fact, it's been, you know, quite cynical about it.
0: Nicholas, I suppose a question there would be, do you think that globalisation relied relied on China being a biddable partner? And China has now become so powerful that it's no longer a biddable partner. And so globalisation doesn't actually work because China's sense of itself has changed.
1: Well, You know, we used to have these arguments in the 1990s about the future course of China and globalization and what was likely to happen. Very different opinions. And one side of that was people who said, look, every society in the world, once they get to a per capita income of something like the equivalent of $12,000 or so, starts to push for democracy. And that was actually a Harvard study decades ago. And, you know, regardless of culture and political institutions. So there was this belief mistaken and held for 30 years now that China was going to change. China was going to change and it would be a contributing member of society and globalization, right? That it would adhere to the uh, global rules of order. China had another thought. The CCP had another thought. And it very carefully crafted a veil around that and its behavior for decades, And up until the point now that people are coming to this realisation and understanding that we have a significant problem on our hands for the future of democratic institutions all over the world. Well,
0: uh, Nicholas and Ian, on that terrifying note, I think we'd better end it there. But thank you very much for coming on to Americano. I hope we'll get you both on again soon. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.